and they are literally already coming in. Fantastic. Some of you are like jumping on this hardcore. And for the uninitiated, let me explain to you what we're doing. Last week and this week is a little mini-series we're doing called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church If That Earworm Didn't Bore Into Your Head, right? And, 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 it, and it works very simply. Most, if not all of us, carry one of these. What we simply invite you to do is text the questions that you have about God, Christianity, spirituality, the Christian walk, following Jesus in the world today, how that compares and contrasts with other belief systems, both similar and contrasting belief systems in the world today. Maybe questions about fellowship of faith. Maybe questions about me. Maybe questions about our staff. Maybe questions about our future direction. Look, guys, anything goes. We invite you to text those questions into the number you see on the screen, 815-314-0363. For those who are listening and not watching online, 815 314 0363, I will get them anonymously. Anonymously. But it doesn't even need to be. Because this is a church where we believe asking questions is part of the spiritual journey. We don't have to deny them. We don't have to hide from them. We don't have to shove them down. We don't have to be embarrassed about them. We don't have to be ashamed about them. God wants you asking the questions, and questions about God is a sign of healthy spiritual growth. You know, Reagan said it earlier, here at Fellowship of Faith, we want to be disciples of Jesus. A disciple is someone who wants to know what Jesus knows, but it's more than that. It's also someone who wants to be who Jesus is is here at Fellowship of Faith, we believe that Jesus is God who became one of us, not because we have to go looking for him, but because God chose to come down to us to show us who he is, to rescue us, to save us, to love us. And he says to each of us from every single walk of life, come follow me. And sometimes that can be messy. And sometimes that can be hard. And sometimes that can be confusing. And sometimes we don't really know how. And sometimes we struggle with trying to make sense of how to truly follow him or seek him or know his will in the world today. 815-314-0363. I will get them anonymously and I will do the best I can to answer them straightforwardly with candor and humility right here on the spot. So... Here we go. Wow, I need reading glasses. All right. Two questions that came in back to back, and I like this one because it really responds honestly to the call that I'm making in this. The first, who do you consider the best Batman actor? All right? Um, I'd love to sit down and have coffee with you over that. We can pray about that one together. You know, a, a lot of people are going to go Michael Keaton and mad props to Michael Keaton because what he did for the franchise in 87 over the old Adam West run is nothing short of just, you know, miraculous in my opinion. But, you know, I'm a Christian Bale fan. And so, you know, I'm putting my stock with Christian Bale and uh, that, 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 that's where I roll. So the second question, a little bit differently toned, what does the Bible say, if anything, about masturbation? If you don't think this should be answered in front of everyone, would you be able to message this number another time? 
I am so grateful you asked this question, and it's nothing that we have to be embarrassed to talk about, because it is a real aspect that a lot of people struggle with in life, at least at some point in their life, and wonder if they're sinning, and wrestle with what they're doing. And, and if we can't talk about that in church, where can we talk about it? So look, I, I first want to encourage you on this front, that if you are struggling with that, you are not alone. Most, if not all, people have at some point, and most, if not all, people have been there at some point in their life. You know, a good friend of mine told me how when it comes to what we call, quote, sins of sexuality, the real power behind them is often the secrecy, the silence, and the shame that surrounds them. And when we live with what we struggle or wonder is sin or doubt in secrecy, silence, or shame, I have personally found that's when the devil, his, his fangs grow. And he's able to take a hold of us because we're never able to break through. Jesus says that those who love the truth will bring what is in the darkness into the light, meaning it is something that we can bring to God in prayer and openness and confession and to those that we trust in the body of Christ as well. And if you are mired in this, shall we say, struggling with this, I would love to meet with you one-to-one -one as this text might indicate. But let me give you just a couple of 30,000-foot elevation insights into the topic. First, it is never mentioned in the Bible which means any kind of thus saith the Lord is very difficult to make. Two, however, it often goes hand in hand with lust, pornography, and issues like that, which is a very dangerous and dark path to go down and which is often kind of consumed with sinfulness. And yet, three, throughout Christian history, most Christian leaders have spoken about this openly. Martin Luther himself, even encouraging it in aspects at times when people were inflamed with lust and finding themselves without being able to control it. And yet, four, I will take a passage from 1 Corinthians 13, horribly out of context, but that I think kind of works in this question that we have today. Paul writes this, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I talked like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now what Paul is talking about is Christian maturity and using the way that we age physically as an analogy. I am not so concerned with a 12 or 14 year old who is bursting on the scenes with hormones they don't know how to happen. But I have often seen people in their late 20s, their 30s, their 40s and older who are even married and happily married who still have not, shall I say, broken an addiction and are looking more for that personal sexual relationship rather than the one that God intended them to share. And so I think there's wisdom in what Paul says that even if you're there, there comes a time and a place to graduate from it, to spiritually mature beyond it, to face the appetites that we have in our body and not be dominated by them. It can get more nuanced than that, and I encourage you to reach out to me directly, but hopefully that casts somewhat of a trajectory to help you get going. Okay, how about this? What would your last meal be 
if you were volunteering to go to Hungary for four weeks in <laughs> Europe. Spaghetti. Spaghetti. Marinara or meat? Marinara. Marinara? Meatballs? Yes. Italian sausage? No. No. Bread? Yeah. Sides? Big. Got it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Here's a question, and I think it'll take a little unpacking. What do you think about progressive revelation? God sent us the major religions at certain times over history when the world and humanity was ready. As humanity changes, so does religion. And of course, any study of my interjection, history, will show that. God will continue to send us religion when humanity is ready, which is not really so much of a question at the end, but a statement. Let me go to the first. What do you think about progressive revelation? I do agree with you that you see from the time of God entering the scene of humanity, God choosing to reveal more and more of his nature and character along the way. But the mistake that I think you can easily fall into is believing that there will continue to be progressive revelations of who God is in some major kind of way. And this is why I fundamentally say it's a mistake. If you read the New Testament letter called Hebrews, it, it, it roots itself in the idea of, shall I say, the supremacy of Christ or how Christ is better, particularly against the old Judaic revelation, but by extension, all other revelations God has been making among people at various times and places throughout history. And the point that it fundamentally makes is that finally, in Christ, we have the ultimate revelation. And so that there is no better revelation we will have of the nature of God outside of Christ. Now, some have taken that to say, well, there's a progressive revelation from Christ, then who's the greatest of prophets, to then Muhammad, who is the greater prophet, and that was a progressive revelation. The Church of Latter-day Saints will talk about a furthering revelation on top of the revelation of Christ, and I think fall error to this exact line of thinking because it pinnacles at Christ. The cross is the top of the mountain. That is the clearest, according to the New Testament, revelation of who God is. So to seek something more or better than Christ misses the clearest picture God will ever give you and, two, goes in a different trajectory than what the New Testament claims. But I appreciate the question, and I think it's a great one, and thank you so much for asking it here today. Two questions. One is, uh, excuse me, from last week, and uh, then one came in today. The first question, do angels sleep? I love that. Do angels sleep? The Bible fundamentally does not answer the question, like you can't open up to like Isaiah 6, 5 and go, angels sleep, you know, or something like that. But it would seem that the indication is that they don't. And the reason it would seem to be indicated that they don't is twofold. A, not being a physical body, it would be interesting to argue why a, a soul or a spirit would need to sleep. Now, now, that's speculation on my part, but I think a speculative path worth exploring. More significantly, you do see, especially in the book of Revelation, highly symbolic, mind you, but you do see in the book of Revelation and books like Daniel 
and books like Isaiah and books like Ezekiel, and I can go on, where it talks about the 24-7 worship life and ministry that the angels have. Now I know that could be speaking generally and they could be sneaking catnaps in in between, but it just doesn't seem to be the sense of it. So I don't know, but my understanding of the Bible leads me to believe that they do not. However, why do we understand and think that all angels are the same? Angel is a job description. Angel is not a species. And so you see in the Bible there's different kinds of quote, angels as well. And so there might even be some sub-variety in this within the taxonomy of how you outline them. Now, I've heard we shouldn't be unequally yoked with our partner. But at the same time, we're encouraged to love those who don't know God. How do we work through the contradiction when looking for a partner? Great question. And so many have struggled with this, particularly when their heart is captured by another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul will write about being unequally yoked. The metaphor, of course, is agrarian with oxen before tractors, when what they would do is team two oxen side by side next to each other, and they'd pit a, a yoke on them, which is not like an egg yellow part, but it's like that big wooden bar that would kind of harness them together, and then you would strap your plow or whatever it was to it so that you were pulling with equal double force. Make sense for those of us unfamiliar? And any farmer would tell you, or rancher or whatever, I don't know, oxen pulling people are called, would tell you that if you have one that is significantly stronger than another, significantly more developed, whatever it might be, they will get out of sorts and injure each other, and it will be inefficient and unfruitful and even damaging. And Paul applies the metaphor to partnerships that we find ourselves in, Christians find themselves in. Marriage, but not just that. Business partnerships, other kind of partnerships where you're putting your life in their hands and they're putting their life in yours, the kinds of ways that we obligate ourselves to each other. He says, be careful, don't do it because Christ should define everything for you as a believer. And to enter into partnership with someone of that nature will be limiting and damaging possibly to both partners. But it doesn't preclude the, the thousands of ways that we live with each other and work with each other in the world. I think every one of us would agree there is a far difference between entering into a marriage covenant or a business contract and helping someone out on a weekend. Would you agree? I think everyone would agree. There is a far difference between getting married and going on a first date. Would you agree? I think every one of us would agree that there's a difference between getting into a business partnership and working alongside someone at a job. Would you agree? The contradiction really fades away that I think you're struggling with when you understand the nuance of the level of mutual obligation Paul is getting at in that passage. Yeah, thank you for asking. How about this? If the Levitical laws don't apply to life anymore, why should we believe that it is still wrong for a man to sleep with a man? 
I've slept with many men, but I'm, a, I'm assuming that you're referring to sex, all right? So let's go there and just translate for a moment. And I know I just raised a whole another set of questions that are coming in, so all right. All right, couple things. The Levitical laws do apply to life today, but they apply in a way different than you might think. Application doesn't mean it says this, I do that. Because within the Levitical laws, what you have is not a legal claim that is made on us today as Christians, but within it, you still can derive principles, understandings, and ways of God that transcend the law that will be, that will be universally applicable in any time and place. And to the question that was posed later, because the New Testament talks about homosexuality too. And so that really has always been the basis for Christians and their position on that question. I can get more into that because we did get a lot of um, LGBT questions that came in last week. And let me just keep rolling and you can text in as we go. Let's go here. Interesting. Uh, A question related to church here. How is Fellowship of Faith doing financially? Oh, thank you for asking. It's a bit um, of a paradoxical answer for me right now, particularly because we are in the middle of summer. At one hand, Fellowship of Faith has never been stronger financially in its total dollar amount of giving than it ever has been, meaning that at least at the end of 2021, it was our largest giving year ever on record and outside of our mortgage at 2021, which was lower than it had ever been, um, it's the only debt we had. However, we did go into 2022 with an aggressive budget. It was aggressive for twofold reasons. Because through COVID, we decided to do a a project called First Wave that only got funded about 40% from donations and the rest was absorbed as debt. Second, we made some staff changes during COVID and we decided to get aggressively behind some people because we saw the trajectory of what they would bring to our ministry and it feels as natural as natural can be today. But that came with it an aggressive budget that we presented. And right now, we're about $36,000 behind budget. It's a $700,000 budget. So we have financial reserves. We're okay. But are we watching it? Those of us who track it going, eh. (laughs) would, like any organization, we love to see a plethora of wealth to do the dreams that we have. You bet. So we're solid, we're strong, we're making it work, but let's not get complacent. And hopefully that answers, and if you'd ever like to see financial records, we're transparent about that, so just email me, and we can get them coming your way. All right. How about this? Explain the region of Galilee in relation to Samaria in Judea. We got the geographer among us here today. How did Joseph and Mary come to live there when their family was from Bethlehem? Okay, visualize Israel with me. Israel is long and tall, all right? Think about it in three general regions marked by two bodies of water. You got to love my map here so far, don't you? The three regions are Galilee, which surrounds what's called the Sea of Galilee, very aptly named, would you agree? 
Samaria, which follows the Jordan River down from the Sea of Galilee underneath it, and Judea down by the Dead Sea where Jerusalem is near. So if I was to equate it today, you would think of Lake Geneva as Galilee. You would think of everything around McCullum Lake and Wonder Lake between there and the Illinois and border, right? Because it's Illinois side, ew, right? As Samaria, ew, you just rush through there to get to Wisconsin, right? Hebron is in there. And you would think of maybe like McHenry and Crystal Lake as Judea, if you will, if that helps you spatially relate those things. Now, Joseph and Mary have lineage from Bethlehem. They have lineage from Bethlehem because David, King David of ancient past, was born in Bethlehem or at least set up shop for a while in Bethlehem. But whether Mary and Joseph ever lived there outside of a few weeks here or a few months there is anyone's guess. They went for Jesus' birth to Bethlehem as part of the census, and they went to their, quote, hometown to register, which does not mean they had to be born there, but it does mean it was a place of family lineage, and then settled in Nazareth, which is far more up by Wisconsin because, hey, the taxes are cheaper, right? So why wouldn't you? So hopefully that kind of helps you understand how that works and how they got from point A to point B. If I can put it another way, it would be easy for me to say that I am from Chicago, even though I don't live in Chicago now. Make sense? Yeah, there you go. All righty, how about this one? Does God save unborn children? I believe he does. To be very forthright, you will not find a verse in the Bible that explicitly answers this question. It's just not a question that the biblical writers chose to address as they wrote the Bible we have. But we know this, God loves people. And we know this, God loves the least of these. You see this theme throughout the Bible, don't you? Read it a little bit and you'll see this theme where God's care is for the, the, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant often be called an alien, but that's what it means. And you'll see that, that, that throughout the Old Testament, you'll see Jesus in his ministry going among the marginalized, those who are despised, those who are in the outside. Paul will say, think of what we were when we were called. Not many of us were of noble birth. Not many of us were wise or strong, but God chose the lowly things of this world and the foolish things of this world and the despised things, the weak things of this world, if you will. And what is more vulnerable lowly and humble than an unborn child that can't fend for themselves, completely dependent on their mom. Scientific understanding would tell us that that which is in the womb is alive. This is why someone can be stillborn. Someone can have a miscarriage because what is alive has died. And scientific understanding will tell us that what is alive in the womb is in fact human. It's not a fish. It's not a parasite because it's not a different species. It's not some other kind of creature that becomes a human. It's human. God loves human life. And it would be strange, I think, to think that God would get caught in a loophole. Well, they never heard the gospel and accepted Christ as their savior. Psh, tough rocks for them. 
It's with questions like these that we have to go more to the character and nature of God rather than a specific verse. And I think the character and nature of God would seem to indicate that while we are all sinful from the time we are conceived and therefore all in need of a savior, Jesus Christ died for the sins of all people and the world. And where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And God in his way can root through and despite our worst actions, work his presence among people. So yes, I think it is very likely, and I think it can be argued, that if you are concerned for that unborn child, God is even more concerned for that unborn child. And if you love and have compassion and seek justice in that, God all the more. Great, great question. All right, let's do this one. Have you thought about covering the book of Revelation in church? Why or why not? Yeah, love it. We've actually covered the book of Revelation here at least twice in the past 10 years. And if you're unfamiliar with this page, I want to direct it to you today. Our website is fellowshipoffaith.org. On that homepage, you will find a link to something we call FOF+. Can you guess what that is? It is where we store all of our digital content and all of our streaming, and we even have people live streaming from that page today. But on that page, you will also find links to sermon archives, and you can search by topic, you can search by date. Just go in and search Revelation, and you will have more fodder there that you will find over the past 10 years than you can imagine. But I've got good news for you. Starting in August of this year, What we are looking at doing for our preaching trajectory, if I can put it that way, for the 2022-2023 school year is something that I'm simply calling the last apostle. And what we are doing is we are looking at the writings of the last apostle. John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and you guessed it, Revelation. So hang around. I might catch it again. One person halfway likes it. (laughs) Here we go. Is it okay to be cremated as a Christian? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. I know there's some some, some debate over that uh, among some people. Um, And if you have more uh, deeper level questions than the simplistic answer I gave, come talk to me. You know, I just want to point out this. It's not so much the method of how your remains are processed as the intent and purpose behind it. Because for God, the body is just as important as the soul. Some people live with a strange Greek philosophic platonic dichotomy that they think God is only interested in spiritual things and these material things, they just fade. It's just a meat suit we got to put up with for maybe several decades until we can get on and get free, right? That is not Christian or biblical understanding. God is all about being incarnate. You know what that means? Like in the flesh, you know, incarnate. Have you ever heard? The body is important even in death, and God will redeem that body even though it decays. And whether it's earth to earth or ashes to ashes or dust to dust, it's not like, well, I can't deal with that one. No, no, it's fine as long as the intent is to bring dignity and honor to this person that existed, and that person continues to be that body 
even though their soul gets to go and be with Christ in the interim until he comes again. So yeah, yeah. Here's one. I want to tithe fully, but my husband does not. How can I honor God and my husband? You are not the first person to struggle with this. You are feeling firsthand the difficulty that comes with being unequally yoked. And the good news is there is hope through this dilemma. God wants you to honor him. And the way that you honor him is by honoring your husband. Unless your husband is calling you to do something in contradiction or contrast or against the spirit of God's calling for you and obedience to him in this world. Simple as that. But it doesn't get you off the hook. Because what that might translate to is going, okay, I don't have to worry about it anymore. I'll just do what he wants and not create an issue. That is not what God wants. I really believe this, that at least in 99% of the situations that are here today, God wants you to have that conversation with your husband. Not arrogantly, not with an air of superiority, not browbeating or nitpicking or condemning, but sincerely and humbling going blank. This is a struggle for me. This is important to me. I love you, but God means everything to me. And by loving God, I know that I can love you even more. It bothers me and hurts me that I cannot give to support the work that God is doing in this world directly and have that conversation. It might be awkward. It might be difficult. It might be emotional. It might be something you would rather not rip the scab off. Doesn't sound like it's healing. Rip the scab. And somehow navigate a path through with honoring each other. And I do believe that if you pursue that sincerely, you will find a way. And you can always come talk to me for follow-up too. My friend came out gay recently and he asked if he's accepted in heaven. Got a number of questions last week, very similar to this one today. One that I'll do by extension that I think brings focus to a very complicated set of questions was the question of whether someone being gay, if they would be embraced at Fellowship of Faith. Let me share a Bible passage with you. You can find it in Matthew chapter 9. It says that as Jesus is walking along, he sees a man sitting at a tax collector booth. And he turns to him and he says, come and follow me. And it says that this man, who we find out is named Matthew or Levi, later to become one of the 12 disciples, comes and follows him. The religious leaders who pride themselves on the religious law and honoring God with obedience to the law see him do this because what Jesus then goes to do is goes to eat in Matthew's home. And it says that as he goes to eat in Matthew's home, many sinners and tax collectors come to eat with him. And they ask the disciples going, why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? And here's what Jesus told them. I have not come 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says this, quoting Hosea 6, he goes, now go and learn what this means. Quoting Hosea 6, he writes, or he says, quoting Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Referring, of course, to the sacrificial acts, the religiosity acts that existed in the, the, the Old Testament world. And if you kept reading Hosea, he would even go on to say, I desire those who acknowledge God, not those who bring burnt offerings. And Jesus says, go and learn that because I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. I would encourage you to encourage your friend and if you struggle with it yourself, to go and learn that. What does it simply mean? To desire mercy more than sacrifice, to show mercy more than sacrifice, to be a place of mercy more than a place of religiosity, if you will. Maybe it would help if I contemporize the story. Matthew chapter 9, 20, 20, uh, I almost said second century, 21st century variety. Jesus was walking along and he saw a man on a float of the gay pride parade. And he said, come and follow me. And he did. And he went to the man's home and so many of his LGBT friends gathered in his home with him. But the Christian church looked and said, why does this man eat with these people? Why does Fellowship of Faith associate with these people? Why does Jesus spend his time there? You can fill in the blanks, right? And Jesus simply says, I don't come for healthy people. The healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means, Christians. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus died for everyone. And to quote verbatim Romans 10, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everything starts from there. And from there, we can explode on the scene what it then means for people of every stream and walk of life to follow him. Thank you so much for asking on something that is so sensitive, difficult, and hard, and so many who do attend Fellowship of Faith, right? Who fear in secrecy, silence, and shame, right? It's not hypothetical. It's actual. Now, a different question comes in. Can a Christian lose their salvation? And then as a side, it says, how do you interpret Hebrews 6? Hebrews 6 is a very frightening passage. And if you want to go deeper, I did a master's thesis on it, and I can send that to you. Just reach out to me directly. But I am going to give you the 60-second version. Most Christian theologians and most Christian history says yes. You can lose your salvation. A minority of Christian thinking says no. You cannot followers of John Calvin and his stream. I will tell you what I believe to be the most, what I think is biblically and theologically correct. Yes, I do believe that you can lose your salvation. It is a gift that can be despised, rejected, or cast aside. And the entire point of Hebrews is to take that possibility seriously. Now, I think it would be dangerous to think that somehow there's something capricious going on where it's like, saved, not saved, saved, not saved, saved, not saved. But I do think we can send our, set our lives up on trajectories of growing closer to God or more distant from God. 
That's what sin does. It has that kind of effect. And this is why we need to take sin seriously in our life and God's call to holiness and obedience seriously in our life because what it does is it calluses, sin calluses and hardens the heart. And it is perceivable and conceivable that at some point you can harden yourself through sin so much that you end up sealing yourself against the Holy Spirit and cutting the pipeline of grace. Hopefully that gives you some insight and I can give you some resources to read even more if that would help. For time's sake, let me do two more. How old do you think the disciples were when they started following Jesus? I have heard that John was probably the youngest disciple. Oh, I love this question and I get so geeked about this question because... Don't we, those of us who grew up in like church land, don't we often think of and perceive the 12 disciples as being 50-year-old balding men with big, full beards? There is a Bible teacher named Ray Vanderland, and you should drop your life plans immediately and just start listening to everything he has written and spoken, all right, who makes a very compelling case that when you understand discipleship from a first century Jewish world, that our assumptions of age might be quite mistaken. Ray will not say this is a hill to die on. But he says you can make a very compelling case and would even argue for a number of biblical reasons and cultural reasons that the average age of the disciple was a teenager. Mary was probably a 14 or 15-year-old girl, and she was given the responsibility of raising the Son of God. Jesus raises up 12 freshmen in high school and says, you will do greater things than these, and puts his entire movement in their hand. This is why I think that students and student ministry is the ministry of today and not the, t- the ministry of tomorrow. John may have been as young as 11, 12, or 13 years old, given his lifespan and given the way that Jesus treated John as the beloved one. He's taking care of the little kid in the pack it kind of logically starts clicking and there's, there's other compelling reasons. Peter is the leader. It would not be uncommon in the rabbinic stream for there to be a team of disciples and just like you got a football captain, you've got kind of like a discipleship captain who would often be like the oldest disciple or mentor or apprentice, if you will, who would be in maybe his mid-20s, which would explain why Peter is married and has a mother-in-law, but you don't hear it on the rest who are still fishing with their dads. So imagine Peter being the leader of the pack, maybe in his mid-20s, maybe his early early 20s, with the others being high school age kids, and John being a middle schooler. Oh my gosh. Now, you can't swear by it, you can't insist on it, but why are you insisting on 40 and 50? Because I think it's shakier ground than that. Don't you want to go break stained glass windows now and like replace them? Wouldn't that be great? And here's what we're going to do for the last question of the day. The most recent that just came in two minutes ago. Are some sins worse than other sins? What do you think? I want to vote. I want to vote. Who thinks? You got got to vote. You have to vote. And if you don't vote, we know that you're the worst sinner of all. (laughs) Just own it, okay? 
Who thinks that some sins are worse than other sins? Who thinks that all sins are the same? Did you, did you look around the room on this? Right? It's kind of equally divided. And it's kind of interesting because much of Christian history has been the same on this question. You will see people argue it from both sides and you will see biblical trajectories that seem to support both angles. I do believe, personally, that some sins are worse than other sins. I can get into the reasons why at another time, but fundamentally at a basic belief is because the Bible chooses to highlight certain sins more than others or raise up certain sins as greater examples of the degradation of wickedness and evilness, and they are not always the same sins we would identify. You want to hear one of the biggest ones? Pride. Do you think of sin of pride as the greatest and worst and most evil of all sins? Even if you nod your head yes, by life and reaction, probably not. Well, many of the things that we demonize, it doesn't seem to be as accentuated. Now, it might just be because the Bible is talking to specific issues in the specific day, and it has to address that topic. I understand that line of reasoning, and it's debatable. But I think the danger is that if you do believe that certain sins are, are worse than other sins, it is done in such a way to treat certain sins as not a big deal. And that would be a completely false path to journey down because Jesus had to die for all sins. And sometimes it's what we view and perceive as the simplest and most innocuous of sins that have the biggest ripple effect, not only in our soul, but in other people's lives. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes about this in such a provocative and convincing way where he compares the sins of Hitler to the sins of maybe like the, the clerk down the street. And he will get you at the end of the day realizing that maybe what Hitler did in all of his atrocity is even not as vile as what you're seeing someone do casually. And you're like, what? Read it. You're not going to go wrong in that book for any purpose whatsoever. So my encouragement is this. Rather than try to weigh sins, judge sins, and shall we say, set up a hierarchy of sins, just avoid it. Just treat sin as sin. Regardless of where it sits in God's hierarchy, just treat it as sin and renounce it and choose the path of obedience no matter how little or how big it happens to be. And for time's sake, that is the end of questions for today. I want to thank you for the amazing questions that you've asked. I want to thank you for putting yourself on the line. Every year we do this, it never ceases to amaze me. The insightful, the deep, the interesting, and the huh kind of questions that are coming from you and God is churning in your life as you seek to follow him and wonder about him and figure him out today. For those of you for whom I did not get to your questions, I apologize. I would love to do this for the next three hours but you would not, right? And so for the sake of the body, I have to land the plane. But I shared this last week, and I will share it again today. We will get to every single one of your questions. Every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Central Time, we go live with a podcast that's broadcast live called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. 
You can pick it up on the FOF Plus page. You can pick it up on the FOF Facebook page. You can listen at 216 The Net. Just Google it. We will take these questions and over time we will hit them and the archive of all past episodes is uploaded within a day or two after the podcast is done. So you can look for your question if you happen to miss it a particular Wednesday. We will get to it because it's important. Because it's important and it, and it, and it deserves the time that it needs. So tune in, check it out. Had fun doing this with you again this year. You invite the band to come back on stage. And we're going to round out our 4th of July worship here this morning with communion. I'm going to ask you to rise, if you will.